Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. We're going to be talking about uh, the Jewish ethics of speech. And, and I, I want to say that uh, I'm going to be, uh, as you will find out, the the tradition, and as you may already know, the tradition has a lot of lot to say about what we should not say. Um, but I am going to end with a number of things that tradition says that we should say, right? So it's not as if our ability to speak is an inherent uh, negative, right? In other words, that um, that you should never say another word in your life, and then everything will be fine. <laughs> Talking to Jews, that would never happen anyway, right? But <laughs> um, but but you should know at least that um, that there will be a positive part to this, um, you know, uh, at the end, because I want to end bechitov, right? And then uh, I want to also leave some time for some questions and things like that. All right. Okay. <clears throat> Again, just. Um, because um, Jews tend to think that the whole world is Jewish and that, or at least the whole world thinks the same way that we do. Um, I just want to point out that what we're going to be talking about is not really shared by other traditions. Um, and even, let's take one that, that you may know, the American legal tradition um, believes in free speech. And therefore, um, the restrictions on speech are really very minimal. There are rules against slander and libel. Slander is false, derogatory, harmful speech that is spoken. And um, libel is false, derogatory, and harmful speech that is written. Um, so there are rules against slander and, uh, and libel, but truth is an absolute defense against both of these. So if you told the truth, even if it was... Um, even if it was derogatory and harmful to somebody, um, you cannot be held liable for either slander or um, libel. Um, the only other um, thing that is uh, the only other place where you actually have to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is when you are under oath in a court. Um, but otherwise you don't, uh, you don't have to tell the truth at all. I mean, just, you know, even if you're president, you don't have to tell the truth. Um, so the, the thing is that it's a, sorry, I just couldn't resist that. Uh, the, um, but the point is that it's a, uh, and there are some truth in advertising laws um, that also require you to tell truth in, the, in that kind of context. Um, but the, um, but even there, it really has to be a blatant lie before you're guilty. So if you say you have low prices, as long as you don't say you have the lowest prices, then it's, you know, you're, you're fine. Um, so, I mean, it's a, uh, it basically is a free speech, American law is a free speech regime where the burden of proof is on the one who wants to claim that somebody, um, caused harm, um, by, um, you know, by, by saying something false about somebody that was also derogatory and harmful. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, we begin with um, uh, we have a series of, of prohibitions uh, about the kinds of kinds of speech we're not allowed to ta- to say. Um, one of them uh, it's already in the very first. I guess I moved, so it became blurry. I'm sorry, I won't move. Um, the, um, the I'm just getting. I'm old. What do you want? 
<laughs> all right. You can move um, all you want. It's totally fine. Okay, we're fine. Okay, good. Um, the um, already in the the very first of the law codes in the Jewish tradition, uh, the book of the Exodus law code, uh, which scholars think was put together. Uh, sometime around the time of David, which is about a thousand before the common era. So it's been around for 3000 years, 4000 years, no, 3000 years. Um, so somewhere, uh, you know, the already in that law code, you have Midvar Sheker Tirchak, stay away from lies. Okay. So already, uh, you have a, in the, in the earliest law code of our people, you have a ban against telling a lie, even if it's not harmful. Right. But if you know, if you know that, that it is, that it's not true, um, and you say it anyway, um, even if it's not harmful or anything like that, if it's sunny outside in Los Angeles today and you say it's raining, right? Um, the, you're, you're telling a lie because you know that it's not true. Um, and you're not allowed to say so in the Jewish tradition. Right. Um, now that's different from, um saying something where um where you you think it's true um but it turns out to to not be true right that's not a lie that is that's a mistake and one of the things that the, the Jewish tradition uh, really uh, develops a lot is um learn how to say i don't know right in other words rather than then say something untruthful, even if you didn't mean it to be untruthful, you thought you were saying the right thing, um, l- learn how to say, I don't know, and so that you don't end up saying a lie, saying something untruthful, even though you didn't intend it to be such, right? So uh, now that, of course, requires a certain amount of humility, um, certain amount because, you know, people like to to think, people like others to think that they know everything, Um but it's a, but that's not a good way to boost your, your self-respect or the, your respect in the eyes of others. Um, you're much better off if you really don't know the answer to it to just simply say, I don't know. And in that way, you avoid an untruth, even if it's not a lie. A lie is an intentional untruth, right? Where you know it's, it's different from what you're saying and you say it anyway. Um, so that's, that's one category. Lies that is uh, that is banned by the Jewish tradition, and you don't have to be in court to to violate that that ban uh, of of telling a lie. If uh, in other words, in general conversation, if you know that something is one way and you say that it's another way, um, and and you intentionally are trying to deceive people, um, then that is prohibited, even if you never took an oath to that effect. Slander is the second kind of um, kind of speech that is prohibited, and it's defined. It's as motzi shem ra, um, and it's desi- designed as um, it's a it's a subset of lies, right? It's a um, in other words, you know that some that what you're saying is not truthful, but it also is intended to be harmful, right? So it's worse than a lie in certain ways because. A lie could be, it's raining outside today, right? Which is not going to harm anybody because they can just look outside and see that I'm wrong. Um, and, and as if anything, it's, you know, they're going to say to me, you know, are, are you blind or something, right? Um, or are you asleep or whatever? Um, whereas slander is an intentional, uh, is a, is a lie, an untruth that intends to harm. Um, 
the person who's being lied about. Um, and so that's, that's even worse than a lie. Um, and you get, uh, and, and that's called motzi shem ra, literally one who, who, um, who expresses a bad name for somebody. Uh, in other words, who, who spreads bad, a bad reputation for somebody. The word shame in, in biblical Hebrew can be either just the name of the person or also the reputation of the person. Um, so the, uh, motzi shem ra is, Another thing that is um, banned, and we have the story of Miriam, who is Motsi Shemra about, um, you know, about Moses's wife, and and then gets Tara'at. It's by the way, not just Miriam; it's also Aaron. And uh, Marlon and I were just having this conversation yesterday, actually. Why does Aaron not get Tara'at, and Miriam does in the Torah? Um, it's another story for another conversation. Another conversation, right? But but the point is that it's clear that. In the Torah itself, uh, that's an example of um, what is what is motzi shemra and the fact that it is banned. Um, third category is lashon hara. Now, this is different from both lies and slander. Um, well, uh, in English, I'll call it slurs because this is truthful. Here, you're telling the truth about somebody, um, where uh, but it is a negative truth. And the, um, and the, and, and by and large, um, in the Jewish tradition, you're not allowed to do that, even though it's truthful. Um, with one major exception. Uh, and the major exception is if you are writing, uh, if the other person who, to whom you're telling this negative fact about a third person, um, needs to know it for some practical reason. So if you're, writing a letter for a recommendation or evaluation for a, a school or for a job about person X, um, then you not only have the, the, the right, but actually the duty uh, to tell person X, to tell the, uh, the recipient of the letter, both the, the uh, strengths of, the, of person X's um, uh, qualifications for the job or the school, as well as the disqualifications, the weaknesses in that person's um, uh, qualifications for the job or the school. And by the way, uh, as one who is asked to write uh, or to give oral recommendations a lot, um, again, there, uh, what's really important in those kinds of situations is to say when you don't know something uh, and to identify it as I really don't know anything about what this person does in these areas. This is not a negative evaluation. I just don't know. So, for example, if I'm asked to give, as I am often, uh, recommendations for people who finish rabbinical school with us, right, it is usually the case that I have never heard them give a sermon, which congregations are uh, obviously interested in. Uh, and then I, I say that I have never heard so-and-so give a sermon. That's something I know you're interested in. What, what are the qualities of the public speaking of the person that you're talking about? You have to ask other people who have heard them, Right. Um, I don't know anything about their organizational ability. Um, I don't know anything about their teaching ability, right? All of these are really important in terms of hiring a rabbi. And usually just in terms of the way in which I interact with uh, the rabbinical students at Ziegler, I don't know anything about those three things. Um, so I need to identify that. And I need to say also, um, I, this is not, an, I, it's really important that I say, this is not a negative evaluation. This is just simply a lack of knowledge on my part. 
And what you need to do is find out from someone else um, the, the, the answer to those questions, which are certainly legitimate questions. It's just I don't know the answer to them. Um, so that's the one place where you are not only allowed but actually required to say negative, truthful things about someone else, namely when you're writing a letter of recommendation or evaluation for um, a job or a, an, ele- an elevation in rank um, uh, in, let's say, in the academic world or, a, or for that matter, in the business world um, or if you are for a school, admission to a school. Um, and the reason for that you know, it comes out of in the Jewish tradition, um, comes uh, out of Leviticus um, 19, um, the, which is, you know, um, you know the, the uh, 1916, if you want it, right? Um, which is that, you know, you may not stand idly by uh, the, the blood of your brother, right? Which the rabbis understood to mean, that you that you literally have to rescue. There's a duty to rescue in Jewish law, which there which does not exist in American law except in ten states. It's not in the common law. If somebody, well, the examples in the Talmud. This is Sanhedrin 73a. The the I can't do that for every page in the Talmud. It's just I do this a lot. Um, the um, the uh, the examples in the Talmud are uh, somebody drowning uh, or somebody who's being accosted by highway robbers. Um, you have to take care of your own life first, but you do also have a duty to do what you can to save the person who is either drowning or being accosted. Um, and in the same sort of a way, but obviously in a much less dangerous way, um, you have a duty, if you are writing a letter of recommendation, to tell the negative, truthful facts, the disqualifications of a given person for the job or the school, uh, as well as the qualifications. Presumably, you would not have been asked um, for this evaluation, if number one, you didn't know the person, or number two, um, especially if you were asked by the person to give a recommendation, if you didn't have some good things to say about the person. Um, but the, but, uh, it is in those sorts of situations, you have not only the right, but the duty to talk about the negative aspects of the person for that job or that school, as well as the positive. But that's the one exception where the person hearing it has a practical need to know. But if the person um, hearing it does not have a practical need to know about um, about disqualifications or negative things about a person um, that are um, then then you're not allowed to say them even if they're truthful and that's lashon hara um, speech about the bad qualifications of somebody or the bad characteristics of somebody so even if it's truthful you're not allowed to say it and then there is avak lashon hara the dust of Lashon Hara, in which you are saying something presumably positive, but has negative implications. This time he got it right. Okay. Now, presumably the, the, the language is very positive. He got it right this time. But the problem is this time he got it right means most other times he doesn't. Right. So that's Avak Lashon Hara. Um, and you're not allowed to say that either. But I must say that uh, when we were studying this piece in the Talmud um, with Professor Shaul Lieberman, Saul Lieberman, who was probably the world's greatest Talmudist in the middle of the 20th century, um, <laughs> he got up and he said, but I have to tell you, um, you know, at that time, rabbinical school was all men. I have to tell you, gentlemen, if you really take a Vaklashon seriously, you can't speak. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, and I must say that this was something 
that he had a lot of trouble following himself. He, he just told us that, right? Um, but in any case, uh, it, and, and of course, there are real limits here. I mean, you may be saying something positive about somebody, you're meaning something positive about somebody, um, and it's taken as a, as, a, as a slur by the other person because you, you, you cannot really control uh, what other people understand you to mean. Um, you can do the best you can to be clear about these things, um, but inevitably, even in, in written speech, um, let alone in, in oral speech, their communication, their, um, you can be simply misunderstood. I mean, uh, I've seen that in spades and in terms of some of the things that I've written, which I thought were pretty clear about X, and then it turns out that they get interpreted to mean something completely different from what I had intended. Um, and if that's true in, in writing, it's true even more in, in oral speech, uh, which, first of all, people may just uh, uh, may not may hear incorrectly or may, may remember incorrectly uh, or even at the very moment may interpret incorrectly. Um, so there's a limit as to how much how much uh, how much um, responsibility you can have for what you say. But what you this, the responsibility that you do have uh, is, is that to be as clear as possible um, when you uh, when you're talking about somebody else, um, and especially um, when you're you know when you are talking about somebody else, right? I mean, because then somebody else's reputation, somebody else's uh, status within the society or the job uh, is very much at stake. Um, so we have so so far three things, right? We have lies, shaker. We have motzi shemra. We have a subset of lies, namely uh, slander, which is false and harmful. And we have lashon hara, slurs, which uh, which is negative but truthful, and which there is one time in which you have to say those kinds of things, namely when. Somebody else has a practical need to know that, but otherwise you're not allowed to say negative things about somebody, even if they are truthful. And that includes even the dust of slurs. Then fourth, um, you have what um, the rabbis call ona'at duvarim. Um, that means literally oppressive speech. Um, and this comes in the, in the Mishnah originally uh, toward the end of chapter four of Baba Metziah, uh, which most of which is talking about Ona about oppression in monetary manners, matters, right? In other words, what happens when you deal in business and the way in which you deal in business is, is oppressive. And oppressive means something different from outright stealing, but on the other hand, um, skews the market. Um, and skews it in a way that makes the competition unfair. So most of that chapter is about that. But then at the end, uh, the last Mishnah there says, as there is ona'a in money, so there is ona'a in speech. And it gives several examples of that. Um, um, One of the examples is one that I think, at least I would hope, that we no longer suffer from. Um, Namely that when you are talking to somebody who is a Jew by choice, um, you say, remember your your origins, which was taken in Mishnahic times as being a negative thing. I would hope that by, that certainly by now we have come to the point where uh, Jews by choice are are fully accepted within our community, not only legally but socially and in every other way. Um, <clears throat> I can't say that 
I know that that's true because I do know some Jews by choice who are still uh, suffering from oppressive speech, um, meaning that they're not really accepted as Jews or um, they're not they're they're not taken seriously as Jews or whatever, right? Um, and we really that is ona'a. That's a very clear example of ona'a. Uh, I would just hope that that um, in our own time that there's much less of that than there was say a generation ago. Um, if not for no other reason, because there are many more Jews by choice. Um, and so, you know, a lot of us will know a number of them and it's hard to, um, it's hard to hate people you love. I mean, it boils down to that, right? In other words, it's hard to, and hard to undermine the dignity of people that you very much respect. Um, so I would hope that that is much less of a phenomenon now, um, than in the past. But another example that that Mishnah gives <coughs> is, um, Remember your former deeds to somebody who did something wrong um, and has done tshuva for them. And and especially as we're now coming to Elul and the high holidays, uh, which is the season of tshuva, of return to the proper path, um, where we all recognize that we're not perfect and and we have messed up, some of us more seriously than others. Um, but none of us is perfect. I mean, and by the way, you don't have to wait, wait for the high holidays for this. Uh, three times a day in the Amidah, we say, Slach lenu avinu ki chatanu. Forgive us our father for we have sinned. So, I mean, it's not as if, uh, sin is absent in, in Jewish language. It's three times a day in the Amidah we talk about, about it. Yes, uh, I would say, I do a lot of interfaith work. I would say that Christians are much more sin conscious than Jews are, um, and I think in some cases far too sin conscious, okay, that's a whole other story, right? But the fact of the matter is that that it is, that it is certainly part of our tradition to recognize that we are not perfect, and and but it is considered to be oppressive speech to remind somebody of something bad that they did when they have already taken steps to try to repair that. Um, and so that would mean, for example, that uh, just to give you a, 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 a contrast to American law, <clears throat> in a lot of American states, <clears throat> once somebody has committed a felony, uh, that person has to record that on every single job application they have after they're uh, freed from prison. Um, and in, in many states, they're not allowed to vote either. Um, and that is, from a point of view of the Jewish tradition, now, again, the exception here is unless the other person has a need to know, right? So if somebody was, let's say, was convicted of um, of um, stock fraud, okay, and served time in prison for it. Okay, so then anything that that, that person um, wants to do in regard to the stock market, um, that is the fact that that person had that, uh, that history is relevant to what's going on. But if this person is now applying for a job as, let's say, a teacher in a school, right, where it's completely irrelevant, um, then you're, then you're not allowed to even bring it up. Okay? Because that is, that is, um, uh, you know, that is undermining the person's dignity and is onatvarim. It is oppressive speech. Um, the, um, there are, I can give you some examples of this, but I, I, I want to, I want to cover some of the other things first. And then when we 
during questions if you want. You can raise all kinds of questions if you like. Um, so we have lies, sheker. We have motzi shemra, slander, where it's a subset of lies, which is also harmful and untruthful. We have lashon hara, which is truthful but negative, and and you're only allowed to say it if there's a reason to know. And avak lashon hara, the dust of of slurs. We have oppressive speech now, onatvarim, which is again true, um, but it is negative about people, um, and it's intended to be negative to undermine the the dignity of the person in the eyes of the listener, um, and or in the ear, I guess, in the ears of the listener. Um, so it's uh, you're not allowed to do that. And then there is richilut, gossip. Um, and this again is in Leviticus 19. Right? You're not allowed to be a gossip among your people. So what is gossip? Um, gossip is um, true language that uh, that is, but that people really have no right to know. Right? In other words, this is an invasion of people's privacy. Now, um, it's not the spreading of wonderful news about somebody, right? Somebody's engaged or something like that, or somebody just got a job. That's not gossip, right? Um, what's gossip is, um, uh, did you know that so-and-so and so-and-so are having marital problems? Or did you know that so-and-so and so-and-so is um, enrolled in Alcoholics Anonymous? Um, in other words, things that are that should be private, um, but that are uh, that are shared with others, right? So, so gossip is really an invasion of privacy, um, and is um, and, and is forbidden as such. As a matter of fact, the, the word rachio, uh, reish kaf yod lamed, uh, and it's called richilut gossip, right? Uh, the rachil is actually a, a traveling merchant, um, because presumably traveling merchants were the ones who had you know, all kinds of news about other places. Um, and, you know, so some of that news was fine to share, but some of it not so fine to share. And uh, and so that's where the, the word comes from. Um, now, on the other hand, um, there are positive uses of speech um, that are where we are not only allowed to, but actually, um, if not encouraged, then commanded. Uh, to speak in these kinds of ways, right? So some of them uh, are vis-a-vis God. I mean, we're required by traditional Jewish law to say a hundred blessings each day, not because God needs our blessings, but because we need to get out of ourselves, right? Um, that is, we need to, um, the whole point of blessing someone else, or for that matter, even in human terms, of thanking someone else um, is to recognize, you know, that it's not me, myself, and I, that, that we are each part of a, a larger context. Um, we are part of the uh, family context, part of our communal context, part of the world's community, part of the environment, and part of the our relationship with the transcendent, with God. However you, whatever you do with that, that's a whole other story. Um, but the but the point is that part of blessing God, the whole point of blessing God, a hundred times each day. Again, it's not because God needs our blessings. It's because we need to get out of ourselves and to recognize that that we are part of a lar- much larger context. Um, so that's one form of speech that's required of us. Another form of speech is that's required of us is um, 
it's, it's called in the literature Hakarata Tov. Um, and I frankly wish there were more of this than, than there is, but there is this in the Jewish tradition, um, which is, um, uh, thankful, uh, thankfulness, gratitude. Um, now you certainly have that in regard to God. I mean, the second last bracha of the Amidah, which we say three times a day, and this is true on Shabbat and the festivals as well as on the weekdays. Um, so because it's part of the, you know, you remember that, that in the Amidah, the first three blessings and the last three blessings are the same throughout the year. Uh, it's the middle section that changes. But in the second last uh, of the blessings, it's called Hoda'ah. It's thankful and, and thankfulness or gratitude. Um, and we thank God for, for a variety of different things. But it's, I think it's also really important to thank others, to be, to, to recognize when others have done something good for you and, um, and to, to say so. Um, because that's part of the way in which we, um, in which first of all, we get a sense of our, we get a sense of our own limits. We need other people for a whole variety of different things. Um, and even if you're paying them, you know, you, you, a plumber came to fix your plumbing. Uh, I would certainly, first of all, I usually offer them water or coffee or something, uh, just to recognize that they're human beings and not just, you know, somebody there. You know, this is, I, I don't want just an I-it relationship with this person. I want a, a, at least a partially I-thou relationship with this person. Um, so, but even if you're paying them, there's nothing wrong with saying thank you because truthfully, I could not fix my plumbing. I mean, I just can't. Okay. And there, and let alone my computer. <laughs> um, the, um, so, I mean, when when somebody has done something, even if you're paying them for it, it doesn't hurt to say thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and I think that kind of speech is not restricted to God. I think that kind of speech is really important for human relations as well. And then a third kind of speech um, that is, is really important, blessing God, thanking God and thanking other human people. Uh, and by the way, blessing other people. May you... May good things happen to you, call to, something like that, right? Uh, a third kind of speech that I think, a positive speech that's really important is where you're supporting other people. Um, whether you're supporting other people to, uh, because they, um, they've just done, you know, a high five, they congratulate them on, I don't know, scoring a home run or whatever, right? Um, or, um, or congratulating them on, on accomplishing something that uh, they were worried about and they took a lot of effort to do and they were, and they, they succeeded in doing it. Um, um, or, um, being there for people uh, in time of need, um, when they, uh, have suffered in some ways, right? When it didn't work out as well as they had hoped, uh, or when they suffered a loss, um, during mourning periods, right? Um, um, or when they lost a job or something on that order, or when, God forbid, they get sick. Right. Um, then it's really important um, to support people uh, in those kinds of situations. And some of them we actually have direct meets votes. So in the case of visiting the sick, that the Cholim is not just a, a nice thing to do. It is uh, it is actually a mitzvah in our tradition, not not mitzvah in the sense in the Yiddish sense of a, of a mitzvah, right? A nice thing to do. But in the, in the Hebrew sense, namely that uh, it is literally commanded, a commanded act. Um, and by the way, when you go and visit somebody, when we're allowed to go and visit somebody, but, but even when you visit somebody online, um, what do you say to, to, to those people in order to support them? Um, and let me just tell you that, um, 
you know, I'm not a congregational rabbi, but I visit a lot of people, uh, and I do a lot of bioethics. Um, and the um, people get sick of talking about the weather and the food in about three seconds. Okay, so what do you talk about? And this I learned um, my uh, the year after I finished rabbinical school, I was I was working on my dissertation, and I was asked by um, three social workers um, to do um, three sessions for the Jewish Home for the Aged on Jewish theology. So they asked me to meet with them before I did that. And they actually asked me to uh, have readings, which they blew up in big print. And, and I have to tell you that these people were really prepared for class. That's not, that's not a vaklish That's not saying that my normal students are not prepared for class. <laughs> that's not saying that at all. I'm just saying these people were really prepared for class. Um, and, um, and they taught me some things about, you know, the fact that as one gets older, body language may change. And in fact, one of the sessions, there was a man who had been a dentist and um, his eyes were closed through the entire session. And then he raised his hand and it was clear that he had heard absolutely from his question that he had heard absolutely everything that had gone on. So I had to get used to different body language. Right. Um, but finally, I asked them, why, of all things, three sessions on Jewish theology? And one of the social workers said to me, because they're sick of bingo, right? I mean, these are people who whose bodies are not functioning very well, but their minds are fine. Now, obviously, if it's the other way around, that's a whole other story, right? Uh, but these are people who are, are really interested in intellectual um, uh, activity, including stretching. Most of these people have never seen anything about theology before in their lives, right? So I'm not saying that when you go into a, a, the, the hospital bed or the home bed of somebody who's sick, you should start talking about Jewish theology. But what I am saying is, right, that um, first of all, um, sit down. Why? Um, because um, if, uh, you know, here, if, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, yeah, here we go. If this is the patient and this is you, what does that body language say? Right. It's saying I'm OK. I'm I have power and you're not. But that's exactly what you don't want to say uh, to somebody who is ill. Right. Because illness is isolating. Therefore, the need to to visit. It is also um, debilitating. And the last thing you want to do is to reinforce that kind of sense of being debilitated. And then what do you talk about? Well, you talk about the basic idea is you talk about the kinds of things um, that you would normally talk about with that person if that person were well. So if that's sports, talk about sports. If it's movies or books or show business or politics, whatever it is, right, talk about those exact same things. Because what you're saying to the person, the subtext of what you're saying to the person, is that you're still a human being and you're still an adult and your opinion still matters. Um, and that's that's the kind of supportive conversation that you need to have with somebody who is ill, right? They are they are, you know, very, especially if it's a long-term illness uh, or if, or if it's a really uh, serious illness, um, they're devastated by it. And and what they what you need in order to be able to support them is allow them to talk about the illness. And by the way, you don't say how do you feel because the answer to that is either lousy or fine, and that's the end of it. Right. You, you can say, what do the doctors say? Um, and then, you know, the, the the person can say what the doctor said. And then, you know, well, what do you what do you make of that? What do you think is, you know, what, what is your, your, your path forward? 
um, and you can you can have a sense of uh, uh, you can allow people to talk about it because that's the elephant in the room, obviously, right? But once you've done that, then talk about all of these other things because that will then get the sick person to be able to realize that yes, I'm still I'm still I, right? Because the third part of illness, an illness is isolating and debilitating, but it's also infantilizing. You can't do the kinds of things that you normally do. So it's a um, so it's really important when you're supporting people to do that. And finally, illness. Uh, the fourth thing, uh, especially if you're talking about long-term illnesses, most of, about 85% of us, by the way, will ultimately die of chronic illnesses, not an acute event like a heart attack or a car accident. Um, so if you're going to be visiting people over a long period of time, one of the things you can do is help them create what's called an ethical will, um, the, which originally was simply a document that somebody wrote, uh, which talked about the moral values that he or she wanted to uh, convey to one's children. Um, but now it can be, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be a letter. It can be, um, some kind of recording, uh, in which you do say, talk about those things, but you also talk about the family history. So if you're interviewing somebody for that, um, you know, just start at the beginning. What are your earliest memories? Who was around? What do you remember about them? All of that kind of thing. And even if that person's children doesn't, they're sick of hearing about those stories, uh, that person's grandchildren will be really interested in hearing about this. So this is a way, you know, if you're, if you have a chronic illness and, you know, because the fourth aspect of illness, by the way, is that it's boring, especially if it's a, if it's chronic, right? But if you're, if you know that somebody's going to come and help you create this kind of recording for your grandchildren, maybe your children as well, right? That's a reason to get up in the morning, right? That's a reason to give meaning to life. Um, and so this is a, a way in which you can support people, and and it really is important. I mean, uh, I unfortunately didn't think to do this when my parents were alive, but I did it with my in-laws. And, um, you know, uh, when I told Marlon I was going to do this, she said, I've heard all these stories. I don't want to hear them again, right? But but I had not heard those stories, right? And so I just started from the beginning with my mother-in-law, with my father-in-law. Uh, and then when I showed, I started showing the recording to Marlon afterward about her father, and and, he, and she said he didn't tell the story that way the last time I heard it, <laughs> right? And but that's okay because this is not for public consumption, right? This is only for the family, and people's memories vary, and. All of that. But that's another way to support people um, and using speech to support people, both in terms of talking about contemporary things and the things that you, you know, that both of you are interested in and that you would share if the person were well. And also, if it's a long term illness, to help them create this kind of an ethical will. Um, I want to say one other thing, and um, and then I'm going to stop and just ask for your questions. Another kind of positive speech that our tradition really loves um, is uh, studying Torah. And not just studying Torah, arguing about Torah, right? Now, this is, again, something that Jews just take for granted. Um, but I have to tell you that the um, the argumentative nature, you know, two Jews, three opinions, that kind of thing, uh, except I once did a scholar residence and somebody came up to me and said, afterward, and said, do you really need two Jews for three opinions, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the nature of the culture, right? But you need to know that the vast majority of other cultures in the world are not that at all. Um, uh, for many years, for, I did a program for the Anti-Defamation League uh, called Bearing Witness. It's a program with 
for teachers in Catholic high schools. Um, most of them themselves are Catholic. And I, I team taught it with uh, Father Dennis McManus, who is a professor at Georgetown uh, and was the, uh, I think maybe still is, uh, the liaison of the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops to the Vatican. So he knew Pope John Paul II personally. He knew Pope Benedict personally. Benedict, um, he also mimicked them. He's really very funny. But, but he, but to his fellow Catholics, he says, we Catholics are good at reception, at, at reception. We receive what we are told. At which point I tell them Jews are terrible at reception. We question everything, right? And then I put on the board, right, uh, the first rabbinic statement that I'm going to teach you. And I put in English letters, lo habayshan lo me, right? And I have them repeated after me three times. And then I still tell them you're really very trusting because you have no idea what you just said. But here's what it says. It says that the bashful person will not learn. So you need to be able to, you need to question me. You need to, to ask me questions. Don't just accept what I say, right? But that's a whole Copernican revolution for them, right? They never would do that with their teachers in Catholic high schools, with the nuns, forget it. Um, the, um, whereas for us, um, this is the way, this is the way you respect people. This is the way that you interact with people and show them that you care, right? Um, I'll, I'll give you one other example of that. And I think I mentioned this in the library many one time. Um, in 1996, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is about 70% of America's Lutherans, um, basically repudiated, officially repudiated Luther's anti-Semitic comments. I mean, not a small thing. And then they add, they, they created a Lutheran commission of theologians to, to create a new Lutheran theology about Jews and Judaism. Uh, and they asked six of us who do Jewish theology to meet with them at Gustavus Adolphus College, which is a Lutheran college about an hour and a half southwest of the Minneapolis airport. And the way they had arranged it was that one of the six of us would give a talk about topic number one in the first morning, and then we would spend the rest of the morning talking about that topic, and then the second one in the afternoon, and so on through three days. So the first one was Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, a lovely, wonderful guy, really smart, really learned, right? Um, so he gave his talk for about an hour, and then the other five of us said, well, it's not quite that way, right? Because... You know, what do you do with this source and why do you interpret this one that way? And, you know, our Jewish thing, right? But an hour later, we looked up and these Lutheran theologians are absolutely bug-eyed. One of them told me he actually thought we were going to strangle each other in any moment, right? Because if you are Lutheran, especially Scandinavian Lutheran, you don't argue in public. You stare, you glare, you get an ulcer, but you do not argue in public, right? And one of the things we had to convey to each other is that that these two cultures, the Jewish culture and the Lutheran culture, express uh, respect for one another in vastly different ways. I mean, in the Lutheran culture, you just let people say whatever they want, right? Whereas in the Jewish culture, if you if you are really engaged with somebody, then you take their argument seriously and to the point that you question it. Um, so that's another kind of speech that the Jewish tradition really values. Now, it has to be done respectfully, and it has to be done, I mean, there certainly can be humor, that's not... That's not disallowed either, right? Quite the obvious, obvious opposite. I mean, the, the Jewish tradition uh, loves loves humor. Um, again, Professor Lieberman once said, um, "There is humor in the Talmud." And somebody asked them where, and um, and he quoted the the rabbinic saying, 
that um, scholars of Torah bring peace to the world. <laughs> okay, he said that that's, that's a joke because scholars of Torah argue with each other all the time. <laughs> right? um, so, I mean, there certainly can be humor and all of that, and, but as long as it's done respectfully and, you know, all of that, right? So uh, these are all positive kinds of speech, and, and we should definitely engage in, in, um, in, in, in blessing and in gratitude and expressions of support, um, both verbal and high fives and things like that, hugs. Um, and, uh, and also this kind of speech that is study of Torah. Okay. Um, let me stop here and, uh, just ask for any questions you'd like. And I guess, uh, if you go into the participants piece of this, uh, you can raise your hand. Um, uh, so Barbara Brager, if you will, can you unmute yourself? Barbara, you can. Barbara, you start. There you, go. you have to unmute. Uh. There you Since go. Last night in the Shavar Kadisha class, we also had discussion about uh, Miriam and, and Aaron and why only Miriam got the skin problems. But the, the, the question that I have for you, or the statement, I don't know how you want to feel about it. Unless and hurrah, when you're writing a letter to a, someone wants a job someplace and they've worked for you, uh, my understanding uh, is that you cannot say bad things about them or they can sue you. Now, uh. on a telephone conversation, somebody asks you and you can say, look at you never heard this from me, but... And they they can't prove that you ever said anything, but you can't put it in writing something bad. Somebody is always late, or he doesn't come, or he or she doesn't complete the job the way you expected it to be done. Right. They can see that. Yes, and they question her rather true, but you better not say it. At least okay. that's in California. Fair enough. So I um, I wrote a, a rabbinic ruling um, for the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards. Um, on a, oh, I just moved my head again, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, I, I wrote, it'll come back, I hope, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll figure itself out. Yeah, there it is. Okay, there I am. Um, the, uh, I wrote a, a, a rabbinic ruling for the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement on providing recommendations for jobs and schools. And what I said is basically tell the truth, uh, and including telling, um, you know, things that you don't know and including, including the, um, the negative aspects of this person, of this person's work or this person's character for this job or this school, uh, as well as the positive ones. So the immediate reaction I got was exactly what Dr. Breger just said, right? Namely, um, yeah, but you're going to get sued. So then there, uh, the, the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement has 25 rabbis on it and five lay people and a cantor. Um, and one of the lay people, and, and very often the lay people are, are, are lawyers. Um, some have been actually law school deans. And one of them was uh, Norman Kravosha, who was on for a while, uh, was a Supreme Court justice for the state of Nebraska. So um, these people are not shy, okay? Um, the rabbis are not shy either, but neither are the lay people. So one of them um, at the time was Mark Gary, who is a, law- a lawyer. He's now actually... Uh, the chief operating uh, officer for the Jewish Theological Seminary. And he agreed to do the legal work for uh, our true us. And we ultimately wrote it together on exactly what does American 
what are your, what are your chances of being sued in American law if you say something negative but truthful about another person? Um, and what he points out, and if you're interested in that, um, then email me and I'll, I'll just send you the link, um, to, or you can actually find it. Maybe, by the way, this would be a good thing for you to see. Uh, this is, this is open to the public. Just go to the, go to the, uh, just Google rabbinical assembly. I'm, I'm going to find it and put it in the chat. Okay, good. Um, so good. Uh, so Rabbi, Rabbi Chats will, will save you this trouble, but, but you may want to, you may want to look at this, uh, any case. If you Google rabbinical assembly and then you just do the tab called Jewish law, uh, and then the tab called committee on Jewish law and standards, uh, what you will see there, it's divided into the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, but you can use the search engine if you want for uh, any particular topic. Um, you will see all of the rabbinic rulings that have been approved by the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards since we went digital around 1980 or so. Um, and one of them is providing um, rec- uh, recommendations for uh, schools and jobs that Mark Gary and I did together. And there he shows that um, what I mentioned to you before, that as long that truth is the ultimate, um, is the ultimate, um, uh, defense against any claim of libel or slander. Um, and now you may not want to end up in court. And so, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of companies will say, uh, we'll only give, um, this person was employed by us from this day to this day and we'll say nothing positive about the person, let alone negative. Right. Um, and because they just don't want to get involved in this. Um, however, Jewish law does does really require that you um, that you are in fact truthful about the person, as well as truthful about what you don't know. Um, do you uh, do you want to do this orally rather than in writing in order to avoid uh, any ability, any possibility of uh, being called into court? Um, uh, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm going to leave that you know to the lawyers. Okay. Um, and I'm not completely sure that that actually uh, protects you if that's what you're worried about. Um, but it's a but if, if really if you are in that kind of situation and you're worried about it. By the way, what happens with with students who are um, uh, who are applying for uh, admission to jobs uh, to schools? I mean, um, they uh, there's the Buckley Amendment, right? That they have a right to see all of the letters of recommendation that are written for them, that goes back to 1974, unless they waive their right to that. And um, and the vast majority of students do that because they know that the letter will not be taken seriously if they don't do that. Um, and so, and there are members of, there are people who will only write a letter of recommendation if the, uh, if the student waives his or her right to see the letter. Um, so if you're in that situation and you, you can insist on that, if you want to write a letter and you can say to the student, look, it's not that I want to say negative things about you, but um, the letter will not be taken seriously unless you waive your right. Um, so at least in regard to students applying for schools, that, that does exist as a way of, of protecting yourself and being able to, to say, to, to respond truthfully. Uh, it looks okay. like Diane or Larry have a question. Okay, go ahead. Or maybe both. I don't know if Diane has a question. I have two. <laughs> Dealing not with the legal, but with the practical moral aspects of, <clears throat> of all of these categories. And the first one is, if you, if you think that you know, 
you have information that says that someone is, let's say a business, is doing something unethical, um, how, how widespread are you allowed to mention that to other people? Only to people who can actually um, take action or to people who might be uh, do business with them, not knowing that they're, that they're, they're, that they're being unethical. Um, I actually have a, a story I could tell. I won't tell it now, I guess. Um, but it was very interesting. It was in South Africa about a business that, was, that had caused me a small harm, and I, and I knew that they, were, they weren't paying their taxes as it was happening. So I could not get a tax refund because they weren't registered. And the question was what to do about it. And the second question deals more broadly with. Let me do that one. Let me do that one first. All right. Just so I don't forget. Okay. Um, the, um, there is another rabbinic ruling, uh, on the rabbinical assembly website by Rabbi Barry Leff, whom some of you may remember. Uh, he has a, uh, he had a doctorate in business economics. Uh, before he came to rabbinical school at Ziegler and ran a company with 50-some employees. Um, and um, he wrote a, a rabbinic ruling on whistleblowing, which, again, you can find on the Rabbinical Assembly website. Um, and uh, and he basically, uh, he and it's really very nuanced. So, I mean, I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to summarize it here, but um, uh, with, uh, well, I will, I will say what he does there is he shows under what circumstances do you have a duty to do whistleblowing and under what circumstances uh, do you not have such a duty. Um, and if you, and, and under what circumstances third, um, should you not do it altogether? Right? Um, so it's a really very nuanced and I think appropriately nuanced, um, rabbinic ruling about whistleblowing. Um, so I, I would, so I think the real answer to your question is, is Barry, Rabbi Barry Leff's, uh, uh, rabbinic ruling there. Um, uh, that's I'm sure in the Choshen Mishpat part of the, of the website. And, um, I just sent Rebecca, it. Would you, would you, yeah. You found it. Okay. Yeah. So that's also now in the chat. Yeah. Yeah. That's in the chat. I'll also put all of these things in the Google drive, which will be where the video of this class is. So you can see all the documents later on also. Good. Okay. Now, Larry, your second question. Well, that's interesting because we knew Barry only when he moved to Jerusalem. So I didn't know he was even here before that. Mm-hmm. I see. Yes. Yeah. He, he made Aliyah. That's indeed true. And started a business again. Now, after he finished rabbinical school, he was a rabbi in Vancouver and then I think in Toledo and then moved to Israel. And um, he was on the board of the, of the uh, sector uh, school and all of that. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Second question is, more is broader and it has to do with public persons and the press and also individuals. So we read all the time about politicians or other public persons about the bad things that they've done. They may or may not have anything to do with their position um, or their, <clears throat> their, their, their office. Um, and I mean, it's, it's clear one shouldn't distort them, exaggerate, tell false, false things. But if it, who is to decide whether it's relevant? And obviously, this is something which is very relevant today. Yes. Place all the time. Yes, there is. Um, there's not a lot, but there is some in uh, some material that at least I can think of at the moment 
um, in rabbinic literature about leaders um, and to what extent um, are, are leaders um, more subject and appropriately more subject to public scrutiny than, uh, than private people. Um, and as you might imagine, um, in the Jewish tradition, as in the American tradition, um, the uh, leaders, by virtue of um, of taking on leadership roles, um, are indeed uh, subjected to more public scrutiny, and in some cases, appropriately so. Now, the, the real question here is the one that you're asking, right? Obviously, a leader should be um, should be subjected to public scrutiny in regard to things that are relevant to the particular position that that leader has. Um, and it's a, so if you're talking about somebody in politics, then um, you clearly want to know uh, what other jobs that person had in political, uh, in politics and uh, how they functioned in that, in that, uh, in that role, um, both in terms of their, um, uh, their abilities and the particular policies they adopted and, you know, and all of that, right? All of that is relevant. Um, is their personal life relevant? Um, not really. Okay. At least not to most things. Um, although, I mean, you do get real questions. I mean, like, for example, it, it gets very fuzzy very fast is what I want to say. Right. Um, because I mean, you know, we now have on the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, we now have six Catholics and three Jews. And a, a lot of people are really worried about What's going to happen with the next abortion case? Right. Uh, and this last one, it was very narrow and it had already been this. It was on in Louisiana on, as to whether you, you needed to be uh, have privileges in a hospital in order to be able to do an abortion. And it had already been decided um, when Justice um, um, Kennedy. 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 Thank you. When Justice Kennedy was on the Supreme Court, five to four. Uh, the same issue had been de- decided in Texas. And so even Gorsuch said, uh, sorry, Robert said, this was stare decisis, right? This was already decided. But even he said in, in his, in his opinion that, well, this was not a question of whether abortion should be constitutionally allowed or not. Uh, that's another, another, another issue for another day. So when that issue occurs, um, you know, will the fact that the that these six are Catholic, uh, will that have a major effect on the way that they that they adjudicate these matters? Now, clearly, uh, you don't want. I mean, there's a piece. I'll just say, there's a piece of me that wants uh, the religious uh, views of somebody, unless they are really harmful, uh, to be not relevant to their uh, their action on the Supreme Court. But on the other hand, right, if you if you know that uh, that the religious views of person X are going to make person X think something that you very much disagree with, then, you know, then that does become relevant. So that's what I mean, that it becomes very fuzzy very fast. Um, and I think it depends, it really depends a lot on uh, as to what is relevant and what is not as to the particular office that, um, that the, or the particular leadership role that the person is, is, uh, is either aspiring to or is occupying, um, and also what the uh, relevant questions are. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Carl, yeah, great. Carl. 
Hi. Just unmute yourself, Carl. I think there you go. Uh, I'd like you to take a minute and talk about little white lies. If your wife says, what did you think of that new pot roast recipe? <laughs> or you're invited to a simcha and, and, and you don't want to go for maybe not such a, uh, attractive reasons so or you come up with some other excuse. What, what does our tradition have to say about is it okay to mm, come up with less than 100% truth in those sorts of circumstances? Okay, good. Um, so two things immediately come to mind. Um, one is um, the Mishnah um, that says, um, how do you describe a bride on her wedding day? Right? Beit Shammai says you describe her the way she is. So if she's beautiful, you say she's beautiful. If she's ugly, you say she's ugly. Right? Beit Hillel, that's not the law, thankfully. <laughs> Beit Hillel, the, the law is according to Beit Hillel, who says a bride on her wedding day is beautiful no matter what she looks like. Right? So basically, I think what the rabbis are saying there um, is that sometimes uh, tact supersedes truth. Right? Sometimes um, that uh, sometimes you don't. Because, again, first of all, number one, in this kind of a case, it's a matter of judgment. It's not a matter of truth or falsity, right? It's a matter of aesthetic judgment. And, and number two, this is not something that you need to share. Nobody, There's no practical reason why somebody needs to know this, okay? And and consequently, it's really Lashon Hara to, even if you think it's true that this person, that this person is ugly, that's not something that, that either... You, you need to share for anybody's practical uh, uh, practical uh, life, nor is it something that you should share. Okay. Now, the, there is another case that is even more to the point. Um, who tells the first lie in the Torah? Eve. No. Eve doesn't really tell a lie. Um, well, all right. Maybe it depends on what you mean with do with Adam and Eve, right? But all right, I'll leave it at that. Uh, God tells at least one of the first lies, right? No less than God. And you know when that happens? Um, God goes to uh, to Sarah and tells her that nine months she's going to have a child, and she says that's impossible because my husband's too old, right? But then God goes to Abraham. And says that in nine months, your uh, Sarah's going to give um, birth to a child. But uh, Sarah said uh, that that she thought that she was too old. Right. Um, so there you have God preferring tact over truth. Right. Um, so there are cases. I mean, it's clear. I mean, you have no less than God as as your uh, model here. Right. Um, there are times in which a white lie is. Uh, is permissible. Uh, and then the question, a white lie being something that you know to be false, but you do it for purposes of saving the feelings of someone else, right? Um, and again, this is clearly not allowing you to tell a lie that's going to harm the other person that you're speaking of, either the person to whom you're speaking or the person about whom you're speaking, right? This is clearly not allowing harm. Right. But where it 
will preserve the good feeling of of the other person and uh and is not going to affect that person practically in any way um then even if it's not the actual truth uh you're allowed to say it um the catholics by the way since um catholics have a very sophisticated um doctrine of white lies right i mean they really i must you know, my, my mother um my mother went to marquette uh in the 1930s and um because my grandfather my grandfather my mother's father was really way ahead of his time on on feminist issues um he had uh he had two daughters my aunt was a year older than my mother um and um he had a little grocery store so he was not at all wealthy uh but he arranged for both my aunt and my mother uh to get um bachelor's degrees and ultimately a master's degree uh at Marquette he must have been paying off that tuition for the rest of his life right um and at Marquette which is a Jesuit school um uh, he certainly couldn't afford for them to go to University of Wisconsin in Madison because that would require room and board as which they certainly could not afford um so my aunt and my mother were living at home and going to Marquette and at that time um everybody had to take 15 out of the 120 credits had to be in Catholic theology and um my mother said that there was a special section for non-catholics uh taught as she said by the most liberal priests they could find right um but there um the she learned a lot of catholic theology including catholic moral theology and part of it was um so what she described to me was a very that's where i first learned about it, a very sophisticated sense of what a white lie is um they also by the way have a very sophisticated sense of the double effect argument uh, which i later used in one of my rabbinic rulings about end of life issues um so this is uh I, you know i i'm definitely not a catholic um but i have a lot of respect for them uh, on certain issues and disagree with them on many others right um and i've been part of the priest rabbi dialogue here in los angeles since it began in 1973 i've co-chaired it for about 15 years Uh, my kids grew up thinking that you could not have a Passover Seder without a priest present. So, I mean, <laughs> okay, right. Uh, this is definitely not an anti-Catholic thing, right? But, uh, but the Catholics really have developed this notion of a white lie, uh, much more, I think, than rabbinic literature has. But, um, you have these two sources, uh, the Mishnah that I mentioned and also the, um, the precedent of God. um saying that there are times when tact really does supersede truth so the roast is really good whether it is or not okay um renee now let's oh i wanted to ask you if the ruhal or whatever that word was that i can't remember now yeah ruki loot yes is that considered for instance if you want to share with a person or persons about someone having an illness or sickness in order to to enlist their aid in helping that person is that No, still- definitely not that does not include that. You're it certainly does not because there of anything there's a practical need to know that so that people can can know that people need visitors. Right? So that's clearly not risky but that's clearly not gossip. Um uh, if anything that's that's really a need to know um so that people know that that the person who is ill needs somebody to to visit. And by the way, I mean we can't do visit visiting in person of the ill in person now which is I mean when we can do it that's obviously the preferred way 
Um, but, but there, you know, there is FaceTime, there is Zoom and the telephone still works. Right. 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 Um, and it really is important that people know that they're not isolated because again, as when I, the first aspect of illness that I mentioned to you is that it is isolating. And we all, yes, we all need time alone from time to time. Um, but we, we very much are social animals. We really need connection with other people. Um, and by the way, with people outside our families, um, part of the problem with this and uh, this pandemic is that, um, we're stuck at home and, uh, yes, you very much love your family, um, but probably don't want to be with them 24 seven and you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be ashamed of that. That's, that's just normal. Um, so by all means, uh, you're not going to reach out and touch someone, right. but by all means do connect with other people. Um, uh, whether again, it's by phone or FaceTime or Zoom or whatever way. Um, and, um, and, and make it a, make, make it something that you do, um, you know, that you do conscientiously. I mean, I, I have reconnected with people I haven't talked to in decades. Um, not because I don't, not because I don't want to talk to Marlon or the other members of my family. I definitely do, uh, and do often. <laughs> um, but I also want, um, but I also want to connect with other people. And, and, and if that's true for people generally, it's certainly true for people who are stuck at home because they're ill or in the hospital, um, because they're ill. Um, because, well, now I'm going to quote you and, you know, well, first of all, uh, it is not good for a person to live alone. That's Genesis chapter two. Um, and then I'm going to quote you another ancient Jewish source. People who need people are the luckiest people, people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's not ancient. Barbara Streisand is only a few years older than I am, but of course I'm ancient, so I guess she is too. <laughs> I couldn't get to a Rabbi Dorf class without a song reference. That was very, very good. Okay. Questions, thoughts, comments? My question, um, you kind of, it didn't seem like you fully addressed with regards to recommendations, whether what where Jewish thought goes on telling someone something that they're not asking about, but you or someone may objectively view as being helpful and is hurtful to the person or detrimental to that person's job prospects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very good question. And it's, and it actually was one of the questions that, um, that I forgot who it was, but somebody in the, on the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards raised um, in the process of discussing the tshuva that I, the rabbinic ruling that I wrote. And as a result, there is a small section there uh, talking about what happens um, if you know that somebody is, let's say, applying for a job and uh, and you were not asked um, for a recommendation one way or another. Um, but then the question is, should you, should you chime in? Should you give that kind of a recommendation whether, uh, you were asked or not? And especially if it's going to be a negative thing, right? If it's going to be a positive thing, even then you probably should not butt in. If you were not asked, you probably should not talk about it, right? Uh, but if you, um, but if, but if, but if it's a negative thing, right? In other words, if you know that person, let's say the person is applying for, uh, I don't know, to be bookkeeper, and you know that in 
uh, in another part of that person's life, that person embezzled money from uh, another employer, um, do you have either the right or the duty um, to say that to the person who's thinking of hiring this person to be a bookkeeper, to do the same kind of job? Um, probably yes. Um, if there is, I mean, if it's clearly connected in the way that I just described, again, because of that verse in Leviticus 19, lo tamod al dam reyecha, you may not stand idly by the blood of your brother, right? Um, but it's got to be really directly on point, and you've got to know it. It's not that you heard it from someone else, right? And you've got to, and, and truthfully, it, it would be better if you spoke to the person applying for the job to begin with, right, and say, why are you applying for this kind of job when you know that it raises um, real uh, real uh, temptations for you that you were not you were not able to overcome in your previous job? Maybe you should look for some other line of work. Um, and you you know you're probably better off talking to the person applying for the job than than at, at least at, be, at the beginning. Um, and because there there are real questions here of invasion of privacy and and, uh, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but there is a small section in the, in the rabbinic ruling that I wrote together with Mark Gary on, uh, on that exact question, because you're right. I mean, sometimes you hear that X is applying for a job and you know something that's not, um, well, let's say that that is a disqualification for the job. Uh, and the question is, to what extent do you owe that information to the potential employer. Um, not an easy situation, let me just say. And uh, and what I just said, I think, is what I would say. Namely, uh, I would, if you know the person applying, I would talk to that person first. Um, but then if that person still persists in applying for the job, then, uh, then I do think you do have a, a duty, at least in Jewish law, um, to, to at least talk to the potential employer, you should at least be aware of. By the way, there's another piece of that rabbinic ruling that I think is important. Um, that if somebody has some, um, let's say, challenge for the job, it's also important to say, uh, but these are the things that you can do in order to enable that person to do this. That's especially true for disabled people. Right. But it also is true for people who have a different kind of not a physical disability, uh, but, are you know, they're not particularly good at you name it, at math or at writing or whatever. Right. Um, uh, but the but the person could do the job and maybe even do it well if the person got this kind of support. Right. Then that also, I think, is something that, that it's really important for you to say. Paula seems to be the last person who has a question. Okay. Hi, Paula. Yeah. Hi. So good to see you and everybody. Thank you. I have a question about um, having difficult conversations, um, sometimes over politics, over race, over religion, um, over people's, you know, performance. So those kind of, these are things that you're not trying to hurt anybody. Um, and yet at the same time, sometimes it's almost like that 
rebuke, but in a loving way, you know, something like tochacha, like. Right. Um, so I was hoping you could speak to sort of the parameters of difficult conversations. Um, Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I first learned about this when I was a counselor at Camp Ramon. And, um, and this was the, the, the day before parents weekend, <laughs> right? So parents were coming up. This was at Camp Ramon, Wisconsin. So it was an eight week session and they were coming up in the middle of the uh, summer. And we were told, you know, um, Johnny in your bunk is a terror. Okay. But you don't tell his parents that he's a terror, right? First of all, you only talk about specifics, specific things that he did or did not do. And you start out positively. Johnny is really good at X. He has some work to do on the following issues, right? Because in this case, he did this. And in this case, he did this. And in this case, he did this. But again, you, you end up on the positive, right? So it's a sandwich, right? So, um, Johnny is really good at this, has some things to do about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but on H, he's really good, right? Now, I mean, that's talking about why so, um, in part because um, if you start out that Johnny's a terror, first of all, the parents are just going to dismiss you, right? This is, you know, you're just angry, you're just, and who are you to begin with to talk about my child and all of that kind of thing, right? Um, so if the parents are going to take anything that you say seriously, they have to see that you're on their side, right? Um, so, and then I, th- I think what I would say was also true for adults. Um, if you're talking to, to somebody and you're going to be saying something negative, um, you can say, well, look, you're, you're, the following kinds of things um, you've done really well. Um, these are the things where there's more to be done. And I'll give you some examples of where you, uh, and I'm not, uh, and again, it shouldn't be general. It should be very specific, right? You you did, and this, you should have done that. On this, you should have done that. You you didn't come to work on time the following days, right? Um, This was due by day X, and you didn't have it until five days later, right? Um, That kind of thing, right? Um, And But then, and look, um, I'm not firing you. I I think that what you, uh, that you have a lot to, uh, a lot that recommends you for this job, um, but there are some real issues here. And by the way, uh, I should have mentioned this earlier, <clears throat> I, I think employees have a right to be um, evaluated periodically. It's, I think it's really a uh, disservice to everybody if one day the, you know, the employee walks and gets comes to work and, and the employer says, you're fired, right, and has never given the employee notice of the kinds of things that the employee could have done and should have done in order to retain the job, right? I think um, that's a whole other issue in terms of employee-employer relations, uh, which I have not really talked about here, but I think I, I think employers have a duty to have periodic evaluations of employees, if nothing else, to say positive things, right? But also, if there are issues, to at least talk about them. So that employees are on notice of the kinds of things that they need to change if they want to retain their job. Um, the in terms of difficult conversations, let's say with family members or with friends about political issues or uh, religious issues or things in that order, um, 
there again, I mean, I, I would suggest to you that, um, first of all, you have to decide whether you want to retain the friendship, right? Um, and if you do, then um, that means that you can't just blurt it out, right? It means that, um, look, you know, you and I are friends. We love doing the following things together, right? But you say things that that are just blatantly racist, Um and that that just can't be. I mean, you, you need to you need to understand. And, and and the person might say to you, "But why?" I mean, I really do think that all blacks are lazy or something like that, right? Um, and and then you have to have a very hard conversation. Why do you think that? Give me some examples. How do you know that that's true for everybody? Don't you know some whites that are lazy? Right. Um, I can tell you some whites that are lazy. Right. And, and just just go through that kind of reeducation. We um, uh, I have been you know, I'm on the ethics committee at UCLA Medical Center. We normally meet once a month. We have had weekly meetings over the last um, two and a half months to come up with a triage policy. And we thought we had done it about six weeks ago. And then we had a meeting with three uh, black physicians who really taught, taught us about the, the systematic racism that's involved in our society that leads to, oh, I'm sorry, I have to step back one step. One of the things we had said was that the basic objective should be to, to save as many lives as possible. And if that, that means that if, per, if you have three people who need the ventilator and, and two of them have pre-existing conditions, which will make it less likely that they will survive to hospital discharge. So you, you save, you give the ventilator to the person who's most likely to survive. So what these physicians taught us was that, uh, that ultimately uh, is discriminatory against blacks because in society generally, they get much less access to healthcare and therefore, um, and by the way, are much likely, much more likely to be poor. And therefore, much more likely to have poor conditions of uh, of living, and you know, live near factories that have very bad air, and not not may not be able to afford good food, and um, and all of the like. And so, therefore, are more likely to have pre-existing conditions. So, what do you do then in terms of the triage policy in the hospital? Do you, you know, in a way that that does not uh, reinforce that kind of systematic racism? Now, this is not to say that any of the physicians of the hospital are racist. Right. right? This is, this has to do with the, the systematic racism that's built into our society. By the way, in education as well. Right? Yeah. Um, so what do you do about that kind of thing? Right? But certainly if you're having a conversation with somebody who's completely, not only completely blind to all of this, but is, um, but is very, um, negative, very discriminatory, very, you know, about, about people of different, of, of a different color, um, or people of a different religion or whatever, right? Um, I think what you, again, if you want to maintain the friendship or it's a family member, right? Then I think what you need to do is, is just start asking questions. Why do you say this? What examples do you have for this? And what about white people who do the same thing? Right? And you, you, the only way that you're going to be able to change that kind of person's mind is uh, to get them to think more carefully about, you know, what's going on here. Um, 
I don't know if I've answered your question, Paula, but. <laughs> I think it's a longer conversation. Yeah, I think it is too. And, and I think that it's not necessarily with our, it can be with our family members. And it also, it can be with our congregants and, yeah. you know, our, our companions. So, but I, I think that doing it with an open heart and, and it's not even do you want to preserve the friendship, but it's sometimes it's do you want to preserve your own integrity in the situation? Yeah. You know, can we do, do I go by this? I can't stand idly. I can't stand by, right? When right. I'm watching my brother's blood be spilled, I can't stand idly by. Right. Isn't that part of it? Yeah. So that's where it, it, it touches me right now. That's right. And isn't this person doing harm to someone else? And shouldn't you stop that person doing harm to that person by the kinds of things that this person is saying? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly the issue. And um, the only thing that I would say, though, again, back to what I was taught when I was at counselor at camp, is that if people are going to change, they have to be have to be open to listening. And yeah. they're not likely to be open to listening if they're screamed at, yeah. right? So, because um, they'll get very defensive immediately, right? Um, so what you need to do is, is say, look, you know, we're family members, we're friends, we enjoy each other's company for a whole variety of reasons, right? But I have to tell you, on this issue, um, I, I, what you're doing is just not acceptable. Bomekubal, mm. as they used to say at camp all the time, right? Okay. Um, the, the two the two phrases that I heard at camp more than any other place was achrayut, right? Your responsibility and lomekubal. It's just not acceptable. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the reason. All kidding aside, that's the, that's how we teach moral moral duty, and uh, camp is really yeah. good at that. <laughs> For that matter, the Jewish tradition is really good at that. But the, but the Catholics tell me that they have guilt cornered. We don't know anything about guilt. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. I guess uh, we're supposed to stop now, right? But um, so we could keep we could keep going for hours. I'm sure. Um, you've maintained an audience for 90 <laughs> minutes, which is which is just kind of, you should get a medal for that um, on its own. But really just thank you so much, Rabbi Dorf. And sure. it's always a pleasure listening to you and learning from you. And I think that the I'm going to send some of these um, to vote around. And one of the things that I think we are recognizing so much in what you've taught us, and um, I was blessed to know before this session and learning a specific class even in these two vote is that it doesn't end with the rabbis writing what we should do and how we should do it. It really ends with us and how we can continue these conversations and make sure that they are the kinds of conversations that we are both living up to, but also making sure to live by and to change for the ways that we are living in the world. So Thank you for your work on that continuously. Um, and I'll let you have the last word before I make one announcement. May you all be blessed with health and, and sanity in this COVID crisis. Reach out and talk to people. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.